have the distinct honor and privilege we do of uh, introducing uh, to you our new pastor. And uh, our... Yes, yes. I, I, uh, we're very excited about this. And uh, uh, Mike and Christine, uh, let me just say this about them. Uh, well, before I say anything about them, I, I, I need to pause here for just a second. I need to say this. I really do need to say this. I want to just say, uh, just really quickly, I just want to honor the elders of the church. Tom, Mike, David, Marshall, John, uh, for your work, for your service, countless hours, tireless work, hearing from the Lord, praying, worshiping, listening, deciding, leading this body in this process. I just want to say to you, we honor you. And we love you and we're so grateful for how God has worked through you and in your lives. Could we give the elders a hand? Um, so anyway, back to Mike and Christine. Um, Mike and Christine, I've, I've known them for some time. Um, I, I've watched them from a distance uh, for quite a while in youth ministry. Uh, everywhere they've gone. Uh, they bring a certain level of enthusiasm and energy. It is just who they are. And um, one of the beautiful things about that, though, is they bring that enthusiasm and energy uh, with foundation. It is not empty. It is not shallow. There is a depth behind it. Uh, they, they are able to mobilize people. That's one of the reasons we're so excited about you guys being here. And uh, everywhere they've gone, they've seen growth and success. Most recently, they've been at... Uh, Waypoint Church in Springfield, one of our church plants down in Springfield, Oregon, as one of the pastors there, lead pastors. It's it's arguably now one of the strongest churches, uh, not only on, in the Pacific Region of Open Bible, but in Open Bible. It's about five, a little over five years old now, doing fantastic, and that's largely due uh, to the leadership of Mike Christine Allison. And so we are so excited to introduce them to you. I'm going to say a couple more things, but would you welcome, come on up here, you guys. Uh, would you welcome Mike and Christine Allison? It's so good to have you here. Now, now to welcome you, first of all, I have, we have a little gift for you. Go ahead and, and pull that out, honey. Welcome to Washington. Welcome to Washington. Oh, get a picture of that fast. Oh, way to wear the blue. Um, I want to read a, a quick passage out of Acts 13, just a couple verses. It says this. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. I want to stop right there. Celebration Center um, became a dream in our hearts in early 1993. Uh, but it was a dream in God's heart long, long before that. Uh, before we ever uh, listened to that call and obeyed that, God had Celebration Center in mind. He saw when we had our first initial gathering at Clover Creek Elementary School, before it ever happened. He saw the move to Rogers High School when we made that move he knew that was happening long before Celebration Center ever existed. He saw and ordained this piece of property for himself 
before there was ever a permit pulled or ever a hammer swung. And he saw this moment today, uh, long before it ever took place. And this, the fact that Mike and Christine, the fact that you're here, we know that this is not because of process. It is not just out of uh, wise decision-making, which it was, wise decision-making. It's not just out of an opportunity for them or just a personal choice by them. We believe, Mike and Christine, that God has ordained you to be here at this season, at this time. And we just want to say to you, we are so excited to have you here. And we are so encouraged to be under your leadership. And we are behind you, as was said on the video. We are with you and we are behind you. We just want to pray for you as you uh, as you lead us into this next beautiful season for Celebration Center. All right, I'm going to get behind you here. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for how you orchestrate your will and your work. God, your word says we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. You ordained this moment. Lord, you prepared uh, this body for this time. Lord, you have placed Mike and Christine and their beautiful kids, their beautiful family here. And Lord, we bless them and we honor them. And Lord, as has already been done, we affirm the commissioning of them to the leadership of Celebration Center. Bless it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you welcome Mike and Christine Allison? All right. All right. (laughs) Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, yeah. You want to take that? No problem. Pastor Chris is used to just leaving his Bible up here and going to work. (laughs) He kept telling me he's not retired. And I was like, you're right. You're not retired. Let's do some work. I think um, the ghost of Kelly's office could be the ghost of Kelly and Chris's office now. And we'll just put your name up there. Whenever you want to come in and do some work, you're welcome to do it. Good morning. So good to be here with you. Can I say something first just about worship and how much I appreciated worship? You know that you are in a place that's committed to worship when about halfway through the set, I was like, I'm going to need some water before I preach because I'm hoarse already from praising God in this place. And I don't know uh, if I'm going to be able to get through it. So thank you, worship team, for taking us into the presence of God. I so appreciate you guys. And uh, I'm excited. I think... uh, The journey to this moment has uh, just been an amazing testimony of the faithfulness of our God. Um, A couple of updates to give you. We found a place to live this week, and so praise the Lord, we're we're good to go. Um, It's over in the Gem Heights area, 8911 163rd Street. It's on the the podcast now. Everyone can come and uh, can come and stalk me. So, anyways, I'm so excited to be here, and I was thinking about how. Uh, how many jobs I've had just in my life and how many different ones I've had. I was thinking about my first paper routes. Did anyone, anyone have a paper route when they were a kid? Remember when kids used to be able to get paper routes? Now it's all adults that have all the paper routes. I had a paper route when I was a kid, when I was 11, and uh, was able to do that. And I was thinking about my first real job was at Orange Julius in the mall. And so what was cool about Orange Julius is I was the only guy that they hired. So it was me and like 11 girls. 
And so I'm 15 years old and I am the king of Orange Julius, right? So my job is to lift all the heavy things. I don't know if I made a drink in the whole year that I worked there. My job was just to go back and forth from the storage room and bring all the heavy things out. But that was awesome. I had a lot of fun doing that. Then I went to Safeway and I worked at Safeway for a long time. Um, I loved working at Safeway. It was one of my favorite jobs. As a matter of fact, if the Lord didn't orchestrate it, I don't know if I ever would have left Safeway. I really enjoyed working there. I got to be in charge of all of the courtesy clerks at the second largest uh, Safeway in all of California. So I had about 40 employees underneath me that I wrote their schedule and managed their hours and did training and hiring. I was 16 years old and uh, it was one of the greatest jobs. I had so much fun doing that. Went off to Bible college. Um, I was one of those crazy guys that attempted to sell books door to door. And uh, <laughs> I know there's some of that in this congregation. Some of you have experienced that. Um, it didn't work out so well for me, but I got experience and uh, tried to sell books door to door one summer. Then uh, if, if you think about bad jobs, wasn't bad. Yeah, it was a bad job. I, uh, I worked at a butcher and seafood place and I was the night cleanup boy which meant I would come in and spray out the machines after they've been working all day grinding meat chunks and that kind of stuff. And like the mats that the, the, they work on, I would hang those up and pressure wash those out and there's meat chunks flying everywhere. And so, you know, when you're in college, you do every job. Uh, I worked at Bank of America for a while. I was a bank teller and then I was uh, I worked with just companies and did their change orders and that kind of stuff. That was a good job. Um, I was a payday loan guy for a little while. That was uh, that was amazing. <laughs> when I did that job, the greatest thing about that job is that uh, there was no customers at this store that I worked at. So I sat in there and did my homework every day and used their long distance back when you had to pay for long distance. And uh, I just sat in there all day, every day by myself for eight hours a day. I would just sit in this empty place and do my homework. It was the greatest job I ever had. And so I don't know why I ever left that job, <laughs> but uh, we did an internship uh, in Spokane, Washington, and for a year uh, we served in a youth ministry there. Then we went out to Everett, Washington, and in Everett we planted a youth group at a kind of a church restart, and uh, we led a, a very small group to a pretty healthy place. We were running about 50 kids there by the time that we left uh, at a church in Everett, Washington. Went to Spokane, Washington as a youth and then associate pastor. Uh, uh, at a church there, had a great run of about seven years, uh, just building a youth ministry, seeing generation after generation of kid uh, just come to know the Lord and be sent off. Then we went on one of those crazy church planting adventures. And some of you who have been around here long enough know that there is a, there's a certain amount of crazy that has to be a part of your uh, wild and courageous, maybe I'll say, faith uh, to step out and be a church planter. Uh, we moved, sold our house uh, with no place to go live and no job. So the fact that we hadn't found a house here yet wasn't that big of a deal. Ultimately, uh, we moved in December of 2008 and uh, sold a house in the middle of like the worst economy ever and then moved, uh, not having a place to go to. We landed in uh, uh, the oldest house in Springfield, built in 1853. I think I shared that uh, on Mother's Day. Uh, and then from there, we were uh, amazingly unemployed for about 10 months. As we, uh, as we sought to get the church up and running. Then I took a job at Regal at the movie theater. That was a pretty fun job. There's nothing like just cleaning up popcorn in movie theaters uh, in your suit to just, you know, remind you that you've arrived. And uh, <laughs> that was an awesome job. I love doing that. I'll tell you. Let me tell you something about, about working at Regal since I, since I got the mic and I can do it. So the best thing that you can do as a customer of the movie theater, really the best thing you can do, walk in, buy the largest popcorn, and then just throw it on the floor. 
And because uh, my, my employees would always get so mad. And everyone's looking at me like, seriously? No, they, they would get so mad because people would just throw popcorn all over the floor. But I would tell people, listen, when you buy the popcorn, you've just paid for my employee to be there. And then when you throw it on the floor, you've just given them a reason to be there. And so you're actually the best customer in the world if you just buy popcorn and throw it directly on the floor. And uh, my, my employees didn't feel the same way, but I always thought that way. And so, so it was pretty funny. And from there, I worked at a performing arts theater. Um, I managed it. I didn't perform. That would be amazing, but I don't have that gift. Um, <laughs> from there, I worked at uh, Willamette Lane, which was the park and rec district. And my job with the park and rec district was to run all of the middle school sports programs for the city of Springfield. And so if you had a middle school student, I ran, I was the administrator of all of the sports programs. So we had basketball seasons and soccer seasons and flag football for middle school and uh, volleyball and all those things. So I ran all of that, but about 1,400 kids in that program, which is a great program. And then I went and worked for our parent uh, organization of Open Bible, the Pacific region, and I did emerging leaders and was in charge of that, uh, working with the Bible college and helping kids come out of school, get into internships and jobs. I also oversaw all the camps up and down the West Coast. And so uh, I'm one of those crazy guys. This is the first year I haven't been at summer camp since I can remember, probably since the mid-90s. And so, so I'm feeling that vibe. My, uh, my team goes to summer camp next week without me. I did all the work to get them ready, but I'm actually not there. And so uh, pretty excited, though, to, to get a break from that. We've, I think every one of our wedding anniversaries has been during summer camp, except for the year that we got married. And so, so it'll be amazing to have a wedding anniversary not at summer camp. Uh, I don't even know. I have to actually plan something. Shoot. <laughs> Someone write that down for me. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking about all the amazing jobs that I've had. Uh, you know, at our, our church in, uh, in Oregon, I was the executive pastor, one of the teaching pastors, uh, in the lead of the youth team, oversaw some of our small groups and so many uh, different roles that I had there. And I was just thinking about how in every uh, job that I've ever had, there becomes uh, a sense of camaraderie that you have with the people that you work with. I want you to think about some of your favorite jobs that you've had and some of the people that you worked with at those jobs and kind of the camaraderie that gets built when you are working with people in those environments. Can I, can I pull this out real quick? Sorry if this is distracting. It's just dangling behind me like a tail. So I was thinking about I was thinking about how you have that kind of camaraderie. And I was thinking about even like at the movie theater, right? When I was working at the movie theater and I would stand outside of those theaters with the, with the college kids that we had hired and we're waiting for people to come out and they're in there making out and you're like, ah, finish making out so we can clean the theater, you know? And you have this you have this environment that that you start to build camaraderie with the people that you are your coworker. Now, everyone has that one coworker who's like, they're out to destroy me, but but not that coworker. The rest of the coworkers you have this kind of camaraderie and you become like a team with them and there's a bonding that happens and you have shared experiences and shared jokes and they kind of become your people. There's people at work that you look forward to seeing how they're doing and you have inside jokes and you have uh, you have communication that happens with them on a really high and personal level. And I was thinking about just how powerful that is when we become in relationship with people that we are co-workers with. Now, here's what I was thinking about. It doesn't happen the same way with the customers, though. The customers that come in, some of them you love and some of them you have great relationship with, but it's not the same as the coworkers, right? The coworkers become like what? Like family. 
They're like an extension or extended family. You have inside jokes with them. I was thinking about the, the movie theater crew, and, you know, I was working there before we got the church up and running. And we get the church up and running, and I transition away from there. And so many of them, I would come back to the movies, and they'd be like, Pastor Mike, it's so good to see you. You don't have to pay. Come on in. You know, it was great. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't like against the rules or anything. It was, it was okay. I didn't break the rules. They were allowed to do that. Uh, but it was amazing, that, that sense of community and camaraderie that happens when you're co-workers with someone. But I was also thinking that it's not the same case when we're talking about customers. Customers we like, but if a customer leaves, you're like, oh, I miss them. And then you hang out with your coworkers some more. And here's what I was thinking about as we begin this journey, this next season of Celebration Center here in Puyallup in this community, that all of us are in the beginning stages of becoming coworkers. We're becoming coworkers. We're not there yet, but we're becoming co-workers. And as we have shared experiences, as we begin to go into the field that is this community and share about Jesus and begin to make an impact and begin to talk to our neighbors and begin to serve next to one another, begin to serve our kids and bless our kids, and we become something different. We go into a level of relationship of co-workers that's more intimate, that's closer. I was thinking about how even over great distances, I still feel connected to some of my core co-workers, people I spent time with. I still call them up and say, hey, you're doing the thing that I'm doing. How's it going for you? And they're telling me their war stories. And I'm like, that's the same thing I experienced. I had a war story, too. And we have this unity that distance doesn't even matter. Why? Because we're working together no matter where our field is. And so something happens as we get ready to do this next adventure and we become co-workers. You know, I was struck by this. I was reading in Philippians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can jump there. I'm going to take us all over the place today, so I'm going to apologize up front. Uh, but I'll be in Philippians and then uh, chapter 1, and then mainly I'll be in Mark chapter 11, if you are one that likes to cheat and jump ahead. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing a letter to some of his co-workers, And the reason I love this is is he is dialoguing with people who have been out on the ministry field serving God the same way he's serving God. And so the tone of how he writes here is an intimate tone that only gets developed when we work together. And I'm so struck by this as we read this. And so I got to tell you a little bit about the Philippian church first. So Paul, if you you know are, are one of those ones that you just got to look at all the history, it's awesome. I love doing that. In Acts chapter 16, Paul starts this church in Philippi, and he starts this church. It's amazing. He's in the town of Philippi, which is one of the like premier staging military bases to get into Greece. Uh, Rome is in charge there. They populated it primarily with like retired soldiers because they need loyal people in this community because this particular community is a key staging ground to get into Greece. And so, uh, so they really care about this community. And so you'll see they kind of have a militaristic view uh, when Paul interacts with this community uh, in Philippi. And so to just kind of bring you up to speed on what happens in, in his interaction there, he shows up at Philippi. And normally Paul's M.O. when he gets to a new uh, community is he just looks for the local synagogue and he starts with the Jewish culture that's there. But in Philippi, it's such a Greek culture, there's no place for him to kind of get together with people who have a shared history with him. There's no synagogue there. So it says in chapter 16, and you can read if you don't believe me, uh, that he actually looks for a place of prayer outside of the city. And he finds a woman there named Lydia. And Lydia is leading a prayer group of ladies outside of the city uh, who have a become Jewish, uh, who have adopted the Jewish culture, and they're praying to God outside the city. Now, here's one thing I want you to know. 
you can do just about anything if you've got a group of praying women. I just, we're just going to say that. Can we say that? You can do just about anything if you have a group of praying women. And Paul knew this. He was aware of this. So he sees this community of praying women who meet outside the city, and he goes and talks with them, and he shares the gospel of Jesus. He tells them the story, and Lydia becomes one of the first in Philippi to believe in faith in Jesus. And something happens, and she goes, and she asks him, it's amazing. She says, if you believe, Paul, that I've accepted this story, then why don't you come back to my house and teach some more? And the first church in Philippi doesn't happen out of a synagogue. It happens out of a home, out of a small group of ladies who get together and pray. It's amazing. So Paul does that. He's hanging out around the town, and you have this amazing story, uh, and many of you heard this story, especially if you grew up in church, where there's a little girl who can kind of tell the future, but she has a demonic presence in her, and, uh, and so Paul casts the demonic presence out of her, and, uh, and she, she loses that ability, and the people who are working with her get ticked because they're like, we just lost our income because of the Holy Spirit's presence changing lives here, and we were making, a, we were making money off of things that were counter to God, and so they beat Paul throw him in jail and all of his buddies while he's in jail he's praising god and the earthquake happens and the chains break and the doors come open and i don't know about you if you've ever been in a tough spot but finding out that in those dark places is an okay place to praise god is probably a good place to start okay so paul is praising god in a really tough situation an earthquake happens all the heaven breaks loose it's exciting the jailer sees the door open and he's like well i'm done because he figures they're going to kill him anyway, so he's going to kill himself. Paul's like, whoa, 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 don't do that, don't do that. We're still in here. We didn't leave. We just aren't held by anything because the power of God can free anybody. So the jailer's like, that's awesome. Tell me the story. Paul's like, I got you. Here's the story. He takes off, and he goes to Lydia's house again, knocks on the door. They're all in there praying. God has shown up. They're amazed. And uh, Paul says, you know, this is awesome. And then he bounces. That's the story of him in Philippi making friends. So fast forward to the book of Philippians, and he's writing a letter. Now he's in jail. It's probably about 10 years later at this point, okay? He's probably in a Roman jail. Uh, it's not exactly clear which jail. Uh, he's been in jail three times, and so this is the third time we believe that he's in jail. It's about 10 years later. And uh, when you're in jail in the Roman culture, it is not like being in jail in our culture. We look at like jail and we're like, oh, that's awful. Imagine you're in jail and you don't have civil rights. They don't care if you eat. They don't care if you survive until trial. You're basically chained to the wall or to a jailer, and you are fully dependent on your family or friends to send you care packages, to take care of you. I mean, you are getting the bare minimum necessary to survive unless your family and friends kind of come to your aid. So Paul is in jail. And uh, here's Paul with his amazing attitude again. He's just witnessing to everybody who's, uh, who's there. He actually talks about it. It's been awesome. I've been able to talk to the jailer, and I've been able to talk. I mean, he has the best outlook on life ever. And he gets this care package from his friends, from the church that he started, from a group of praying women who were outside of the city just looking for a place to talk to God, who have built a church inside their home, and now it's a thriving community of believers, and, he's, and they've sent him some aid because they heard that he's in jail. And so this letter is a response to this aid that they've sent, and he's writing this letter. So I want you to get the tone because he is so excited to be talking to people who are doing what he's doing, given everything they have to share with someone the truth about God's incredible love for them. So I'm in Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Timothy's there. He's hanging out, probably writing this. 
And he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all the overseers and the deacons. Who's he saying? He's saying to all the co-workers, to all my co-workers, the ones who are in the game, not the ones who are in the stands going, good job, guys, you're doing a great job. To the guys who are in the game, who are meeting in, in even though it could be dangerous to meet, who are serving even though there's nothing to gain except for that the kingdom of God would advance. To that crew, I want to talk to you, Paul says. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then listen to his heart. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Now, here's why. Catch this. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. What is Paul excited about? He's excited about his co-workers staying in the game. It's been as much as 10 years. They sent a care package to check on him, and he's letting them know, hey, I'm okay. What happens to me isn't as much of a concern as that you stay in the game. I care about you. Let's do this. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, hey, I am so confident because we've worked side by side because I know the cost. I've been in the jail that you are threatened with every time you share your faith and you grow this thing that is the community of believers. I've been beaten by the guards that guard the jail that you live in. And I know what you face and I know the courage that it takes for you guys to gather and to meet and to make a difference. I know what it takes because I know that's what you're doing. I am confident. I am confident that Christ will complete the work he started in you that's amazing i mean we could we could just be done right there that's that, that pretty good stuff verse seven i'll keep going because i have some more time it is right for me to feel this way about all of you i love this since i have you in my heart he says that's how we become heart to heart for whether i am in chains or i'm defending and confirming the gospel all of you share in god's grace with me God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love this, verse 9. And this is my prayer. This is the way Paul prays. I love when you can just get a picture of how he prays. This is what's in his heart. He says, this is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He says, I'm just praying that you're growing, that your dreams are getting bigger, that fruit is coming out of your life, that you're not looking back, that you're taking more territory, that you're accomplishing everything God's put in your heart to get accomplished. That's how I pray when I pray for my coworkers. That's what comes out of me. Now we're going to talk about that idea of fruit coming out of, of your life here for a little while today, but I just, I, I'm so moved by his heart when he prays there. He says, we're coworkers. We're co-workers. He also says this, I know my assignment. I'm defending and proclaiming the gospel. That's my job on the team, Paul says. And I know you know your assignment. So maybe I can ask us, church, this morning, do you know your assignment? Are you on the team? Are you a co-worker? 
Are you with me? Are you with us? Are you in this battle, in this fight? Are we making a difference in this community for the kingdom of God? Are we, are, are, do you have an assignment? Do you know? Are you on the team? Are we co-workers? I'll just leave that there. You can think about that. So Paul says there's a fruit that comes out of your life when that happens. And I love that analogy. All throughout the scriptures, there's time and time again that, that the, the scriptures use the terminology of fruit or of a seed being planted in us. And, uh, and so I'm going to just kind of walk through that because I think sometimes what happens to us is we get excited. You hear a truth like this and you're like, yeah, I want to do something for the kingdom that matters. But I don't know if what I do matters. I don't know how much it matters. I don't know if Paul would write a letter like this to me. I don't know if I would be included in the group. Would he see me as one of these? I'm not so sure. Or I would love to, but I've never had the chance to. Or I'm not sure what my role really is. I don't know how that should look. And so we get stuck there sometimes. We get a little bit paralyzed of I'm excited, but I don't know how to get my foot into the water to begin this journey of being a coworker, being excited about the things God is doing. So I want to just kind of take us on a little bit of a whirlwind through a couple of scriptures because I want to understand this idea that the scriptures tell us that God deposited into us. When you made a pro- proclamation of faith, when you said, God, I don't know how I don't have all the answers, but here's what I know. I don't know it all, but I know I'm going to trust you. So I'm going to take that step of faith. And Jesus, would you come into my heart? Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you take the first place in my life? And I'm going to serve you. When you took that step of faith, the scriptures tell us that God deposits in us a seed. Now, I love the analogy of a seed because a seed represents something. A seed represents potential. Right? Paul says at the end of the journey, there's fruit. At the beginning of the journey, though, there's just a seed. There's potential. Now, here's the thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about a seed. It struck me that a seed isn't just potential for a tree. And it isn't just potential for fruit. It's a potential to reproduce into an orchard or a forest or beyond. In one seed is the potential to reproduce over and over and over and over and over and over again. So when the scriptures tell us that God deposits into our heart and lives a seed, what he's depositing into us is incredible potential to do something for the kingdom that matters. Now, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. What is this seed thing? So let me just confirm it by throwing some scriptures up here. All right. Galatians chapter three. So, you know, I'm not making this up. Uh, verse uh, 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. First Peter uh, uh, 123. For you who have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. First uh, John chapter three. Uh, which verse? Verse nine. Uh, verse nine. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. You see, for some reason, God thought it was important for us to understand that he deposited within us the seed for the potential of what we could do in his kingdom. When God looks at us, he doesn't look at the current state that we're in. Some of us, uh, if we're just being real transparent, would look today at the current state of our faith, of our journey, of what we're accomplishing, and we'd just say, Pastor Mike, you're, you're setting the bar high already. Knock it off. Can we just be friends first? Stop doing that. It's okay. We can both be family now, right? I live in this town. I'm not going anywhere. He just knocked that off a little bit. But God understands that there is something inside of us, a potential, a dream, something we can accomplish that's bigger that's reproducible, that has kingdom impact. You know, 
I was thinking about how many people God used through Scripture that we would, if we were just honest, we wouldn't have picked them. We wouldn't have chosen them. I was thinking about Moses and how the Hebrews saw him as a selfish murderer, yet God saw him as, even though you don't speak so well, you're going to lead my people. I was thinking about Joseph and how, how you know, his brother saw him as a spoiled brat. And others looked at him and said, he's arrogant. His father looked at him and said, who my favorite? God looked at him and said, deliverer, deliverer. I was thinking about Rahab. Whoo! You want to talk about not great credentials. Yet she gets listed in the genealogy of Christ. Some of us are like, well, I'm not so sure. Well, if you have a, well, I don't know how far I want to go into Rahab. If you have an easier story than hers, you're ahead of Rahab in the story. Think about David. Everyone's like, oh, David's so awesome. Yeah, but he was the runt of the litter. His father and brothers didn't even think it was worth bringing him forward when they were looking for a king. They just left him out in the field. They didn't see that kind of potential in him. He was a little bit of an eager beaver. You know, some people don't like the eager beaver. It's like, oh gosh, this guy again, right? He's like, I'll take on Goliath and he can't even wear the armor yet. And then he goes on to basically planning a murder and committing, uh, you know, all kinds of sins beyond that. You think of Bathsheba, his family ends up a mess, but he's the king of Israel in the chosen line of Jesus. The scriptures only say one person has a heart after God's own heart. It was David. So some of you who are trying to disqualify yourself as I begin to dialogue about this seed of potential that's in us probably haven't been real honest about the nature of who God can and will use. You probably believed something about yourself that isn't true. You probably thought maybe I've disqualified or wasted too much time or I don't have the influence and I'm just going to invite you to explore who God can and will use because I don't see criteria in here that looks a lot different than willing and submitted. And if you can be willing and submitted, God can use you. Okay, we're going to keep on moving here because I'm going to run out of time. I'll keep us here and that ice cream is going to melt and everyone's going to be mad at me. So, <laughs> last thing, you know, even, even as you look at Jesus and how he entered the world, I'm always moved, and Christmas time we'll probably talk about this, I'm always moved about how God chose to send his son into the world in humble circumstances, not a rich family, not a wealthy family, not a established home. The fact that he was born in such humble circumstances, it always just strikes me to think, you know, God set the expectation that from any circumstance, you can become whatever God's called you to be. All right, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave that alone. All right. You guys, are, you guys got it already. I, you had it three illustrations ago. So let me take you forward now to Mark chapter 11. And so I want to talk for just a little bit about this idea of what the seed becomes. So we know, we know that Paul says there's fruit that comes out when we become co-workers and we see the evidence of that and we get excited about it. We know the scriptures tell us time and time again that God deposits the seed into your life that develops into that fruit. And then we see Jesus in one of my favorite, probably least preached about stories in the whole scripture. In Mark chapter 11, he is about to do something that on the outside just looks insane. 
he is going to, and you may know the story, he's going to curse a fig tree and it's going to die right there. And if you look at this story from the outside, most of the time, if you read your Bible, you just kind of go, oh, that's weird. And you just keep on moving because why in the world would he do that? So I want to kind of set that, I'm going to set the stage for you. I'm going to explain why he does that. And then I'm going to talk about what we can do in response to that. So you know where we're going. Put your seatbelt on. Mark chapter 11. It's amazing what's happening in this story. Jesus has just uh, had that moment of the triumphal entry where he sends his disciples into town and he's like, hey, go down there and find me a a donkey, a young one, and just untie it, bring it back to me, and I'm going to ride this thing into town. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a weird request. If someone just came up to me and was like, hey, I need your car and uh, because my buddy's going to ride it into town, uh, can you toss me the keys? I'd probably look at them and say, "Uh, I don't think so. So Jesus says, if anyone gives you a hard time, just say the Lord needs it. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone came up to me and was like, hey, can I have the keys to your car? The Lord needs it. I would smile and I would say, let me get back to you. And I would probably call 911 and say, there's a crazy person out here. Can you come and, you know, talk to them and make sure they get the help that they need because they're going to, you know, hurt somebody. But that's what happens. These guys come into town. They untie this colt. Someone goes, hey, what are you doing with my donkey? And they say, the Lord needs it. And they're like, sweet. It's amazing. So they take the donkey up. Jesus gets on it. He rides into town. You know, the palm branches are waving. Everyone's like, woohoo, Jesus. And, you know, he's kind of got celebrity status right now. They're kind of of a mindset that he's probably going to lead a military uprising. So they're getting excited about this, this uh, very prolific leader who there's been stories about miracles, and they're excited to see what happens. It's getting later in the day. He shows up in town. They've been singing. He gives the donkey back. And then I want you to catch this. He shows up at the temple. At about verse 11 of Mark chapter 11, he shows up at the temple, but it's late, and the temple's shut down. And, and that's where we're going to pick up the story, okay? He shows up at the temple, uh, verse 11, I believe. Maybe it's verse 10, give or take. It says, as they approached Jerusalem, came to Bethlehem. No, where is that? Okay, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, I love this because no one talks about this. He was in the temple. In a moment, he's going to come back, and all heaven's going to break loose. Tables are going to get flown. People are going to get whipped. He's going to kick everybody out of the temple. It's that, it, it, that impactful moment where he's like, you've turned my house into a den of robbers. Get out of here. But I love this because no one, no one, real, no one ever talked about the fact that he was in the temple the night before. So he must have saw something. That triggered in him what he was going to see the next day. There was some temp, some table set up, some signage set up, you know, buy your dove here. You know, there was something going on in there and something triggered. Now, have you ever have you ever known that you were about to have some conflict the next day and had a night to think about it? You've been there, right? You've seen in your head all the ways the conversation can go. If they even do this, then then I'm going to snap. You know, that moment that happens in all of us. I, I don't know that that's exactly what Jesus was experiencing here, but it's pretty, I, I, pretty interesting that he notices the temple and then he's silent. And he's like, take me out of here. And him and his guys march out of town. They leave. They're not on the donkey anymore. And then we pick up in verse 12. They're in Bethany. They're about to come back into the temple. And it says the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Now, I don't know if you've ever stewed on something all day, but you want to fight on, you want some food. You need to increase carb loading, okay? He's like, I got to get ready. This is going to be, because it is about to go down, right? He's like, it's ready to happen. So Jesus is hungry. And he sees in the distance a fig tree, which is in leaf. And he went to find out if it had any fruit. It says when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves 
because it was not the season for figs. I love that Mark points out it wasn't even the season for figs, right? But this tree had leaves on it. So in a distance, he's like, oh, I see that. I'm going to go eat. He shows up at it. There's no figs. Verse 14. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now, that is a random phrase. I don't know what you think about when you read that. I see in myself a borderline crazy person yelling at a tree, just like, you know, I don't know what the disciples must have took of that. It was impactful enough that Mark wrote it down, like, oh, he's good. Jesus is losing his mind, it seems like, right? He's hungry. He's got an agenda. He's marching into town. This tree doesn't have any food on it. He's like, get out of here, tree. And then they keep going. All right. I just want you to catch it. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And it says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law that had uh, been looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Then it says, when evening came, they went out of the city. So he spent the day just wrecking this place. And then he's like, dare you to challenge me. This is my father's house. Don't mess with it, right? I'm assuming he's still a little hungry. There's some fight in him. So so anyways, <laughs> they go back out of the city after they've had this impactful, just like amazing thrash the temple moment. I can imagine like the disciples like, tick. Yeah, like they, you know, like they want to be on Team Jesus, so they just kick over it. You know, if I was Peter, I totally would have done that. I'd have been like, yeah, see, that's the one I did. All right, sorry. All right, so I'm just, I'm just, I'm in the story. I don't know if you're there. I'm there. All right, and he says, in the morning, so now it's the, uh, the next morning. It says, as they went along, they saw that fig tree that was withered now from its roots. And Peter, I love Peter because he always says the thing that we're all thinking. He remembered and said to Jesus, hey, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Peter notices, hey, this fig tree, it's gone. You did something, Jesus, and it changed the way. Now, this is a powerful object lesson because Jesus is going to explain it here, and then I'll, then I'll break it down, and then we'll, we're almost done. And he says this. He says, hey, have faith in God, verse 22, Jesus answered, because I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, Mount Rainier, by the way, how come in the interview process, no one told me that Mount Rainier was the most dangerous mountain in America? Why didn't that come up? Why did I have to read that on like Google homepage or whatever? <laughs> a little help here, guys. I would have looked for a house with like a helicopter pad or something. No. <laughs> Sorry. I, just, I got lost there. Bring everybody back. Okay. Where am I at? Verse 23. Someone help me. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it'll be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, I want to just talk about this tree for just a moment because there's all kinds of just ways to look at this. The first thing you have to know for this. Now, officially, I know more about fig trees in this region than any human should know because I was studying for this. And so so don't be overly impressed by this. I had to look all this up, too, because I'm like, what in the world is going on here with this fig tree? But I just want you to catch this in this region of the world. At this time of year, even though it's not the season for figs, generally, if there's leaves that come in, the fruit comes in before the leaves. And the type of fruit that comes in 
I'm going to blow the, uh, the pronunciation of it, but I'll spell it for you so you know I'm not making it up. It's T-A-K-S-H, so taksh, all right? And it's like this pre-fruit that would grow on these fig trees, and especially the poor of the community, they would go and they would gather this because it's not the actual figs. It's this pre-fig that would grow, and they would gather it, and they would actually sell it in market. They could eat it. It was edible. It was edible fruit on the tree, but it wasn't the actual fig, and it came in at the same time as the leaves came in. So when Jesus sees a tree with leaves on it, even though it's not in season, he has a reasonable expectation that there's going to be these little pieces of fruit that come in on these trees at that time. Now, here's the critical thing. If there's no tax on the tree that year, that tree is not going to produce any fruit. Okay, that's the precursor for fruit. So if you have a bunch of leaves and no tax, then that means that that tree is not going to produce for the whole year. So what happens is Jesus sees this tree. He sees it in the, in the distance, and he sees leaves on it, and he's hungry. He's looking for a fight anyways, right? He's ready to go in and accomplish something. He's about to set right what we've messed up in the natural and begin to realign our priorities to put God on the throne instead of our own selves on the throne. And in the midst of that, he sees this tree. Now, the other thing you should know about, uh, about a fig tree is time and time and time again throughout the scriptures, it's one of the illustrations that gets used to represent the people of God. Israel is constantly uh, uh, used as a metaphor for like a fig tree or, or something along those lines. And so there's a metaphor that's deep in here as an object lesson about the people of God uh, that are always represented by a fig tree throughout the scriptures. And so Jesus shows up to this fig tree and he's looking for something. He doesn't expect it. It's not the right season to have big giant figs on it. What he's looking for is potential for this season to produce fruit. He's looking at it, and if it has this little buds of fruit on it that he can consume, then that fruit will be there when it's seasoned. He's looking to see if it has potential, and it doesn't. And here's what I was struck by as I read this. How often in our journey with Jesus are we concerned that our tree is leafy, that it looks like it you with me? That was pretty good. Let's come back to that. If you, if you checked out on me, I want you to come back for me just a moment, right? How often are we more concerned that our tree is leafy, that from a distance things look right, but when the king of kings shows up and he's looking for the potential that this is something that will produce fruit, he finds it barren. That's what's happening here. He shows up and there's no potential. And he says, you know what? This was the shot. May you never bear fruit again. And he, he creates this object lesson. And they make note of it. And they're like, that was strange. And he says, you know what? If you have even just an inkling of faith, this wouldn't have been a big deal. But because so much of our lives, we struggle to have even just a measure of faith that God can do what he says he's going to do, that he can do it in us. We miss out on the potential of God producing something that matters in our lives and that's what jesus is illustrating he's saying hey guys i didn't expect there to be full-blown fruit on the tree i'm just wondering if there's some potential is there in you just a little bit of faith that says something could happen here god could use me jesus says if you had that you could have told mountains to jump into the sea and it wouldn't have been a big deal for you that tree didn't have even that where are the people of God that have some belief that God can do something through their lives that matters for the kingdom of God? Where are they? 
So Jesus encourages them. He says, hey, nothing's impossible when we believe. As we get ready to wrap it up, I'm, I'm sure I'm a little bit past time, but I, I was just struck by this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you an article. This is by a Christian author, um, a guy out of Portland by the name of Donald Miller. Some of you know him. He wrote Blue Like Jazz. And you may like him. You may not. It's okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings. He wrote something, and it was just part of a blog that he wrote. And he was talking about what happens to uh, uh, an author when they write a story and they get frustrated because the story is kind of bogged down. And they don't know where to go. They're not sure how to handle the direction of the story. I'm going to read this to you, and then, then we're going to wrap. And he says something. He says, when novelists sit down to write a narrative, there's a question that they ask themselves in order to create exciting and meaningful stories. And that same question can also create a more exciting and meaningful life. And the question is, what if? What if? J.R.R. Tolkien once asked the question, what if there existed a place called Middle Earth? And what if Middle Earth were under threat? Every good story begins with some form of this question, and so does every good life. Whenever a novel starts to drag, the writer simply has to ask this question, and suddenly life gets exciting again. What if there were a car accident? What if my protagonist won the lottery? What if my protagonist came home and his wife had left all the furniture with all the furniture? A series of these questions can dislodge whatever fascinating thing is going to happen next in the story. Now, to be sure, you don't have the power to win the lottery, and I don't recommend getting into a car wreck. But within limits, the question, what if, can radically change our story and our lives. This is him still writing. Several years ago, I asked the question, what if 360,000 churches in America could each have a mentoring program? And out of that question came one of the most exciting adventures in my life, the mentoring project. Bill Hybels once asked, what if there were a church in this field? Rick Warren once asked, what if I could bring peace to the continent of Africa? And out of these questions came stories that have positively affected millions. What if we got out of our shell and ask some questions like that. What are some story turns that could happen in our lives to make a difference for the kingdom of God? What if I renewed my marriage vows? What if I quit my job? What if I brought home a puppy? What if I adopted a child? If your story has gotten boring, maybe it's time to ask yourself the what if question. There was a time when Chris and Lisa said, what if there was a church in Puyallup? And all of you are here today because of that dream. What are the what if questions that have been floating around in your heart and in your life? What are the what ifs of what God could do that would change the story? If you're feeling like, man, there's just, I don't know what to do, where this thing should go. I haven't seen the seed of potential happening. Maybe it could just start if we said, what if? What if God could use me to share my faith with one person? What if God could use me to have the courage to walk across the room and begin a conversation with that person that he's put on my heart? What if, what if God could use me to lead my family better? What if, what if, what if? I feel like today as we begin the journey, there's, there's several different places on, on this journey where we start. For some of you, you're ready to be coworkers. And I say, let's do this. Let's jump in. You have an assignment. You have a job. And you are just ready. You've been waiting. And you're like, Pastor Mike, it's taking you too long to move. Get up here and let's get something done. And I'm like, high five. Amen. Let's do it. I'm so excited. For some of you, 
there's been this dream of what could be and this task, this little potential of fruit that's there. And you've known this is the thing I'm supposed to do. And I just don't know when and how to do it. And this is the beginning of the season, I believe, of God just unleashing that in your life. The faith is going to come and meet the dream now. And we're going to step out and we're going to see things happen in the heavenlies because of the potential and the seed that God's put into your life. I'm so excited. I get to just be like a a cheerleader, like Paul. Go for it. Let's do it. That's awesome. Some of you got drugged here today because there was ice cream afterwards. And I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're here. And you're just like, I'm not sure what I think about all of this yet. No worries. Step two for you is just come back and hang with us some more. Let's get some of your questions answered. Next week, I'm going to talk about courage. And I'm going to talk about what it really takes to get out of the boat. Spoiler alert. So we're going to have some, we're going to have some, some dialogue about that. That sounds like something that might help you answer some of your questions. Come on back. We'll keep going on this journey together. Wherever you're at today, here's what I'm most excited about. I'm excited for that day when we look at each other. And we're not there yet. That's okay. We look at each other and we smile because I know that you're doing everything you can for the kingdom of God. And you know that I'm doing everything I can for the kingdom of God. And we're telling crazy stories about that customer that lost his mind, whatever. You know what I mean? And, and, and you're just like, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, do you believe that? And, I, you know, I was sharing faith, my faith with this guy. No way. I saw that guy. I was sharing my faith with that guy too. Oh, that's so cool. How's it going? And we're just telling stories because we're co-workers and we care. And we want to see the kingdom of God advance here on earth in this community and beyond. That's the day. That's the journey. That's where we're going. That's what this whole thing's about. I don't know about you, but I want to make sure that the things that count get some of my time and my energy while I'm here on earth. I want those dreams. I don't want the Lord to show up and be like, what is this? Everything looks good on the outside, but I felt under the leaves and there was no potential and no fruit. I don't want to be that. So whatever it takes to not be that, Lord, if it takes me out of my comfort zone, if it takes me to have some more faith than I have right now, God, give me a measure of faith to step out. Even if it's just this much, give me a measure of faith to step out and do the thing you've designed me to do. We all, we all have a role. We all have a place. Let's be co-workers. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be in this moment at the precipice of what you're doing in this community at this time to get to be co-workers, not just with one another, but with you, with the spirit of God here, that we could be co-workers with your Holy Spirit, with what you want to accomplish in this place. God, I am so humbled. I am literally amazed that in such a time as this, you would bring us together to accomplish that here. So God, if it stretches me, allow me to be stretched where I'm not flexible, break me and remold me. God, if I, if I have anything in me that's more me than you, I just pray that you would help me to surrender it, to see it. God, I pray for those kernels of just potential that are in the room right now. What if? What if we stepped out of faith? What if we did something that mattered? Put that dream in our heart and give us faith to meet that dream. God, we thank you. We're humbled. Thanks for a family of God that's bigger in the kingdom than we could ever imagine. Thanks for bringing us together in this place, in this moment, in this time. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thanks, guys.